On this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, recorded during the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's September Conference in Indian Wells, California, we discuss the conference, meet with Bill Prentice from ASCA, and interview CASA leadership. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 166 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for September 19th, 2022. Recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York, and from the CASA 2022 Annual Conference in Indian Wells, California, on September 6th through the 9th, 2022. This is Sue Kite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic, and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory, accreditation, and finance issues. So I feel like we spent most of the last two or three mm -hmm. weeks, uh, three weeks we uh, in the studio <laughs> here uh, between our boot camps. Mm -hmm. And uh, last week we did the finance and accounting. And of course, I've been on the road um, with the uh, the CASA 2022 annual conference in uh, mm -hmm. Indian Wells, California. And fortunately, you couldn't visit with me. Um, it was quite a trip and very hot out there, Sue. So oh, yeah. it's hard to believe mm -hmm. even hotter than here. But it was, uh, <laughs> and then I came back with a, a lot of allergies. Uh, allergic problems here, but I do want to thank uh, the hospitality of our host out there, Beth LaBoyer and April Leitenberg. They uh, they made the uh, the whole trip great, uh, if not a little hot, of course. And uh, I was a guest of the association, uh, both for the podcast and for, uh, I did a session on a four-hour boot camp on the first day about finance. So it was a financial boot camp. I think it's about the third time I've done boot camps, finance boot camps for them. And uh, Sue, I had a wonderful audience. I really wish you could have been there for that because we, we sometimes uh, are challenged getting people to be interactive during yes. our boot camps virtually, mm -hmm. which is very difficult. So it was great to be in person again and to have uh, an audience interact and ask me questions that kept me thinking. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. at the end there, I had to tell everybody I'm, I'm going to have to go through some of these slides very quickly because you asked me uh, questions that uh, that I hadn't had a slide for, which uh, most people are very grateful for because they really, you know, they want to make these things uh, very pertinent to their jobs. So... So again, thank you to everybody out in uh, California for the conference, great conference. I interviewed uh, three people during the conference, so we'll get to that in the second section here. So I just want to kind of go over some of the notes that I took from the conference, uh, you know, the different sessions that I attended. I uh, picked up some little uh, tidbits, and uh, these are kind of random. Sometimes I, uh, in many cases, I'm not even sure who the speaker was for this because I was just taking notes as I went along. Yeah. But the first, uh, like one of the opening speakers was Caitlin Zuliff, and she's the CEO from SCA. Great presentation on uh, kind of what's going on in the industry and a little bit into the future. And she said a couple things that were kind of surprising to me. Like by 2030, California will have the largest shortage of nurses of any state, which I guess isn't too surprising given the size of it. Mm -hmm. um, but that it just seemed interesting that California of all states tends to have a, a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, and, and she didn't have any particular insight or, or at least she didn't right. share with mm -hmm. us what her insight was uh, about what caused that. 
that. And she did mention that nationally they need 1.1 million nurses and the part of our problem is that we're we're going to have about 500,000 are expected to retire between now and 2030. Mm. So thought that was an expected uh, uh, or kind of a interesting statistic and just looking at you because I know you've decided that you want to retire somewhere. Well, you'd like to retire tomorrow, tomorrow but, uh, yes. uh, but certainly your intention is to retire before 2030. And of course, yes. you're not in an unusual uh, age uh, bracket for mm-hmm. you know the average nurse out there. Yeah. She also mentioned something that was interesting. We know, and we've been talking about quite a bit about uh, turnover rates. And she, and again, I don't know what the source for this was, but she indicated that in 2021, there was an 18% turnover rate in clinicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, not surprising given what we have been witnessing among our clients. Yes, just what we personally see. It is hard to keep people and hard to get people. It's just a problem all the way around. And just in terms of even, you know, uh, leadership positions, too, Mm -hmm. we're seeing a very – I bet that same statistic is holding, at least for our clients Mm -hmm. out there. Something that's not a surprise, a movement toward more physician employment by the health systems. And she did predict some, uh, you know, major growth in the uh, areas of orthopedics and cardiovascular. Totally agree with her on orthopedics. Yet to be seen what happens with cardiovascular. Mm -hmm. Of course, they've been approving procedures for that, but I've yet to see a lot of pickup on that. But – I do understand that it could certainly be a growth area in the future, given yeah. uh, its movement uh, out of the hospitals into into other environments. And then there were quite a number of breakouts that I kind of popped in for at least. I tried to so when there were like four breakouts going on, I of course mm-hmm. tried to Run spend a little bit of time of in each of them. <laughs> yep. um, there was standing room only in the mm-hmm. Quapi Studies uh, breakout session. Mm-hmm. It was uh, there were four going on at the same time, and uh, this one was uh, there was no set uh, place to sit. Uh, great, uh, great. Uh, uh, session uh, that the speaker talked about, and she suggested that you might not want to be terribly creative in writing your studies, which is interesting because I think uh, kind of our philosophy is we do try to be creative when we're writing our studies just so that we can, you know, make sure that you have a good uh, explanation of what happened. Mm-hmm. The smallest group of this particular group of breakouts was for a presentation on workers' compensation claims. And I actually took that as good news. It probably means that this particular woman was talking about uh, workers' comp claims in a surgery center. And I, I took that as that, you know, probably we don't have a lot of situations where workers' comp claims become uh, a big issue in an ASC. Mm-hmm. Uh, great presentation on the joint programs. Uh, they emphasize the importance of ongoing training between the doctor and the staff. In other words, after you've done a total joint, you know, uh, have a debriefing, you sit down and talk about it and and certainly uh, keep their skills up to date. I think the main reason for that is there's just a lot of ongoing changes that are occurring, especially from a technological and a, from a supply standpoint there. And then really, as we always emphasize, need for good documentation of the training uh, of any of those quality programs. She also emphasized in this uh, presentation uh, that uh, bundle payments were going to be uh, definitely a, a big uh, draw for for, you know, for joint programs in the future. And also, you've, I think we've talked about this in, in a previous podcast uh, about, you know, when you're dealing with joint programs, having a good nursing care team and a, a, a kind of a pre-surgical consult with the patients or help them to be prepare for the procedure and the mm-hmm. pain and, and how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And of course, as we all know, a successful joint program has to have good screening of the patients coming in. You, yeah. uh, there's only, you know, a certain type of patient that would be appropriate to be allowed, that, that could... Uh, that would be able to go right back home again, right? That's right, yeah. exactly right. So, Sue, so I thought that was kind of an interesting, we were talking about invoicing and uh, getting payment for certain insurance claims. And they, uh, this particular presenter, and again, I'm sorry I don't have all the names of these presenters, I really was just taking notes on the fly, uh, but talking about how implant reimbursement, sometimes the invoices that come from the vendor uh, show that it's part of a kit, and that kit implies that the implant was was supplied as part of, uh, in addition to other supplies in there, mm. and that they're getting denials right now, rightfully so, I, I would believe, uh, because the uh, the agreement with the insurance company is that they're paying for the implant, not for any okay. additional supplies in there. So mm. be very careful when you're submitting uh, these uh, invoices for reimbursement for the insurance company. If you're lucky enough to have a contract that allows you to charge for the implant, recognizing that if there that the word kit is in there, uh, you might get a denial simply because they believe that uh, it's not just the implant that's being invoiced. 
And also during a presentation about uh, recent denials, there was a, a comment that uh, pain injections, you have to keep a very close eye on the frequency of those pain injections, you know, especially once you get to upper numbers, you know, five, six injections in a row. Uh, and I really would encourage you to uh, think about including this as one of the elements in your peer review process, making sure that whoever's doing the peer review also reviews the frequency and the need for these additional procedures and whether there's any other uh, interventions that might be necessary at this time. Um, you know, Sue, we've been talking a lot about peer review and and how we we're trying to figure out how to put together some type of an ongoing education program on that. So that I think this is just again emphasizing the importance of that. So we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and uh, we'll have three interviews. the AAC podcast with John Gailey and our virtual conferences would not be possible without the support of our sponsors and patrons. Our goal with this podcast is to help busy ASC executives and staff to keep up with the latest news, learn how to remain compliant with regulations and accreditation standards, and to provide opportunities for ASC leaders to advance in their careers. All of this, of course, costs money. And without our sponsor partners and our patrons, we would not be able to provide this service. Surgical Information Systems was an early sponsor that leads the industry with their software solutions. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, visit their website at sisfirst.com. Our newest sponsor is Trivalence. The Trivalence solution is focused on removing waste from the healthcare payments ecosystem by creating the next generation data-driven supply chain automation and payment optimization portal and infrastructure, saving countless hours, administrative costs, and allowing for scale. For more information, visit trivalence.com. That's T-R-I-V-A-L-E-N-C-E.com. Our oldest sponsor, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, is the nation's leader in outsourced regulatory and accreditation oversight. Busy administrators, nurse managers, and medical directors simply don't have the time to keep up with the constantly changing regulatory environment and the requirements of the conditions for coverage and accreditation organizations. AHS helps you to remain compliant for a reasonable fixed monthly fee so you and your staff can focus on taking care of your patients. For more information, visit ah-strategies.com. And last, but certainly not least, our patrons. For a reasonable monthly cost, our patrons support the podcast while receiving access to a database of important information, such as policies, forums, grills, and education programs, as well as the ability to meet weekly via Zoom with each other and the staff of the ASC Podcast. Visit ASCPodcast.com for more information. Our first interview was with Bill Prentice. He's the chief executive officer for ASCA, the ASC Association. And uh, Bill and I try to talk at least uh, once a year. Uh, we're great that we had an opportunity to talk twice this year. Mm -hmm. So he talked about the ongoing trends. This is the first time we had an opportunity to talk after the proposed uh, 2023 payment rule came out. So let's listen to this interview. So I'm here at the uh, California Association meeting in September of 2022, and I'm here with Bill Prentice. He's the Chief Executive Officer at ASCA. And uh, Bill joins us a couple times a year. Thank you, Bill, for uh, for coming on the, the podcast here, talk a little bit about what's going on. Last time you and I spoke, it was before uh, the new payment rule for 2023, the proposed payment rule came out. So um, can we start by talking a little bit about, you know, what were some of the major events or things that came about in the uh, in the proposed rule? Well, thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to spend a few minutes with you and uh, and and talk about what's going on in the ASC space. When it comes to uh, our proposed uh, CMS payment rule, uh, Medicare payment rule this year, uh, you know the usual buckets. You know, what are we going to be reimbursed? You know, how are we going to be updated for inflation? You know, what procedures are going to be added to our list? Uh, and you know, are there going to be any significant changes to our quality reporting program? Uh, when, taking first things first, when it comes to, to payment, uh, we're a bit disappointed in the inflationary update that's yeah. been proposed. 
only 2.7 percent you know, for both us and hospital outpatient departments. Especially in light of all of the dramatic increases that we're experiencing, especially in salary costs or, or well, it, wage exa- costs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we all can see the impact of overall inflation in our personal lives. Yeah. And, and since most, you know, generally Medicare, uh, excuse me, medical inflation is uh, higher than mm-hmm. overall inflation, a 2.7% increase uh, seems, you know, way too, uh, too low. Uh, so we're obviously going to be advocating for for a, a fresh look at that data and hoping right. that we get a higher inflationary update by the time the rule is finalized in November. And uh, you and I were talking before we started the recording here. Uh, you know, I've been around a long time, actually in the industry longer than you. And I remember in 2008 when... Stop bragging. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't think it's bragging. <laughs> in 2008, when we moved to the new reimbursement system, there was a lot of talk about the importance of us being tied to the hospital system. It seemed counterintuitive at the time, but um, but I think we're running into that same situation right now with this uh, the, the payment rule update. Yeah, for listeners uh, who have not paid close attention to this, uh, a reminder that f- this is the fifth year of a pilot program yeah. where CMS has been updating ASCs for inflation using the same inflation factor as the hospital outpatient departments, the hospital market basket. Right. Before that, we were being updated using a, a broad inflationary um, factor called the Consumer Price Index for Urban Consumers. And most years, that mm-hmm. CPIU would spit out an inflation number that, as I mentioned, would lower than right. the hospital market basket, again, because medical inflation generally runs higher. This is one of those odd years, though, yeah. where probably if we were on the CPIU, we'd get a higher inflationary update right. um, than, than what has been pro- proposed using the market basket. I'd argue, though, that because in most years that is yeah. not the case – and because I think being aligned with the hospitals in terms of having an interest in having the, the best possible inflationary update, having their lobbying power, their market power, you know, working on our behalf in this, right. you know, to this extent to try and get the, a good inflationary update, um, we're better off staying on the, on the market basket. Right. As I mentioned, this is the fifth year of that pilot. So there is, you know, a chance that next year, we could be revert back to the CPIU or something even worse, you know, a chain CPIU, which is a, an even a, a number that you know spits out even a, a lower inflationary yeah. number. Um, we're arguing, of course, that because of the pandemic, the last right. two years, volume numbers are suspect. Right. And as a result, they really need more data about this pilot. So they should extend it for at least a couple more years right. and hopefully extend it permanently. Something we're also trying to get addressed legislatively. And I think another piece of good news right now is that we know the hospitals are not any happier about this low increase as, as like us. Uh, no, they, they, they'll make a big fight for it. They have been very uh, outspoken in terms of their concerns about this uh this this number and so to the extent uh, our combined voices through you know our comments to the proposed rule and things that you know we're saying publicly uh, lead CMS to you know, make a, a change and, and increase that number uh, I think we'll all benefit and our pen- patients will benefit as well right one of the challenges that I think we have right now one of the things that we've noted you know ambulatory surgery centers we know are, are a lower cost alternative you know our reimbursement rate is considerably lower than the hospitals built right into the CMS system so we've always been making this argument that it's a cheaper place to go but there has been a bit of a problem with that with regard to the copay cap now we've talked about this before but I think it bears uh, repeating the importance of moving this so why don't you talk a little bit about what that is and what we're doing to try to fight it yeah, the, the copay cap is something that is a complete head scratcher to anybody who, who spends a couple of minutes thinking about it, which is the copay cap is uh, a, a law that basically limits what a Medicare beneficiary will pay uh, as a copay when they receive care in the hospital. Right. And so for uh, this year, that's $1,556 is the maximum amount a beneficiary would pay. I think I have that number right. Uh, meaning that it doesn't matter if that uh, procedure you're getting in the hospital costs thirty or forty thousand dollars, you're not going to pay more than fifteen hundred some odd dollars right. as a copay. There is no copay for care being pr- provided to a Medicare beneficiary in the ambulatory there's surgery no center. No copay cap. No copay cap. Right. So what that means is is that there's this perverse disincentive now yeah. for a Medicare beneficiary where it will cost her more out of her pocket to get a lower cost procedure in a surgery center right. than a higher cost procedure 
in the hospital. So we as taxpayers are being disadvantaged by this perverse disincentive. Um, So we're looking uh, legislatively in our ASC legislation to create a copay cap for our setting as well. And, and, And this matters because, you know, when this or the original copay cap was established for the hospitals, that was before ASCs were really performing yeah. high cost pr- uh, procedures like like total joints and and, and spine procedures uh, with high device costs. Um, now that we're doing more of those higher cost procedures, um, this copay cap has really self identified itself as a real barrier to care. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Medicare beneficiaries that we need to address, particularly those Medicare beneficiaries that don't have like an additional like Medigap coverage. Right. So this is the lower income Medicare beneficiary, uh, more likely to be a, a beneficiary of color that is going to be disadvantaged by this uh, by this barrier and something we need to get Congress to address. And we need to make it clear we're, we're in favor of the cap. We just want to make sure it's applying uh, equally it, 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 to the hospital. It, it, exactly. That, I mean, look, we know that the, the cost of medical care, uh, particularly for Medicare beneficiaries, is a real stress on them. And so we yeah. need this copay cap to apply both in the hospital and the surgery center. Another thing that was interesting in this most recent one, when I when I read the the, the proposal, the 2023 uh, CMS proposal, uh, that only one procedure was added this year. Probably the I, I I'd have to go back and look at my records, but I think it's the lowest number of procedures added in um, in, in certainly recent history. Uh, I think that's that's the case, and and we actually had offered up 47 different yeah. pr- specific procedures that we believe could be safely performed on appropriate Medicare beneficiaries in the ASC setting. So to have only one of those procedures uh, being added is 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 really uh, just terrible, especially uh, post pandemic when we know that there's a movement already, uh, and especially in other insurance companies from the hospital into the surgery center. Exactly, and when you see what is moving on the commercial side, particularly in patients near Medicare age, yeah. and the things that we're able to do, and so total shoulders, total shoulders, total ankles. There's a, a host of different procedures that we could be performing that we really need to get added to our list. Right. One of the things that we've seen in this this proposed rule as well as last year's was a a really odd. Um, uh, term being raised by CMS, which is the idea that a procedure has to be safe for a typical Medicare beneficiary yeah. in order to be safely put onto our list. Since there's no definition, we don't understand what they mean by a typical Medicare right. beneficiary. That's you know we're basically fighting a ghost there, yeah. as well as the fact that that just goes you know completely ignores the whole underpinnings of the ASC model, which is that we use patient selection criteria to make sure that every patient that comes into a surgery center is safe, can be safely seen there, that they don't have comorbidities or other health conditions um, that would would create a higher risk to to receive care in an ASC. And take the pressure off the hospital so they can focus on the more intensive patients. Well, well, exactly. So so this this straw man of this typical Medicare beneficiary is something that we need to get them to to do away with because it it really doesn't make sense and I think is really harmful uh, to the growth of the Medicare program and to the ability to use the ASC to save um, billions of dollars a year. Right. Just just to remind people, the, the fact that we exist as a site of service in the Medicare program saves that program yeah. over $4 billion a year. $4 billion that can be used to provide care in other ways and in other settings. So uh, why CMS is not more incentivized yeah. to try and drive volume to our setting and increase that number, to again, to create greater savings in the overall program that can be used to provide other benefits and other care in other ways, uh, mystifies me. And lastly, I, I think something that both you and I are very passionate about is uh, the leadership challenges that we're dealing with, right? I, we have a staffing challenge too, but uh, that, that's a discussion for another day. But um, what we have found during the pandemic is uh, a lot of retirements of senior uh, nursing and administrator staff, even business office uh, people, and a lot of new people coming into the industry. I've run into a lot of them. I did a boot camp here for a for the California Association on Finances, which was a lot of fun, but a lot of new people. Some of them coming from outside of the healthcare industry, some of them coming from the healthcare industry um, or or from education where they had a lot of education, say, on the physician side or in the hospital side, because there really is no education programs in colleges and universities for our type of a setting. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on there and the need for mentoring of our uh, of our leadership and you know uh, development of uh, our future leaders here. 
Yeah, I, I think the the overall staffing shortage issue that we're seeing and this leadership challenge, I think, are interrelated. Yeah, I, I think that you know, they, they are separate to in some to some degree, but I think they are related. I think that that this is a problem that has been, you know, long in coming, and I yeah. think the pandemic obviously really. Um, push things a, a, a lot faster because of the, the resignations we've seen, the decisions by people to just throw up their hands and yeah. retire. And, and I think that has led to both a, you know, an overall staff shortage, but I think we are also seeing a leadership shortage yeah. in terms of, you know, where, where are the next generation of administrators and, and CEOs of surgery centers going to come from? And are they going to have the breadth of knowledge and training and experience right. uh, they need in order to succeed and to make sure that our ASCs continue to provide the, 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 the great efficiencies, um, the great patient safety and the great quality that we have um, come to expect. So I, you know, your boot camps, I think our administrator development program right. um, is a way to, to try and address that so that we can find either new administrators or uh, people who want to become administrators and give them the training and tools um, so that they can, you know, lead a surgery center um, and and help a surgery center succeed, you know, today and into the future. Uh, one of the things that our program focuses on is is basically uh, connecting a new administrator or a soon to be administrator, a mentee, with a mentor, someone right. with you know, with experience in the ASC setting, um, a proven record of success that they can turn to. You know, outside of the classroom, outside right. of the training sessions, to ask questions of and, and to get you know to, in a non-threatening way, in a very non-threatening yeah, yeah. way, um, to be able to you know ask the ask the the, the stupid question, right? Yeah. Of course, there are no stupid questions, right. but you know, sometimes people feel like I, I think I'm, I, I probably pe- people expect that I know this, you know, and I'll just muddle my way through. Yeah. Where now they have a trusted you know person they can turn to, ask that question get the answer and, and then obviously, you know, apply that, you know, in their surgery center. So I think it's something that, you know, we have to spend a lot of a time and attention on. Right. Um, it's something that's, uh, I, I think the initial reviews from our program, and I'm sure you're seeing the same with yours yeah. is really positive. And it's yeah. something that I think we're going to grow over time because I think this is a problem that's not going to go away. Right. And, and I, what I love about your program too is that that one-on-one mentoring um, also assists not only to have somebody ask the questions for, it, but also to introduce people to other ind- individuals in the industry. And so, and so I remember the first time I came thirty-two years ago to the yeah. first ASCA conference. I didn't know anybody, right. but you know, I have I have no problem going up and introducing myself to any you know people. But not everybody is that way, and I think this provides a great opportunity during right. conferences. Just exactly that, because part of our program does involve them coming to our in-person meetings yeah. and with that mentor, and then meeting people, and obviously getting the experience of that being live in in a you know right. in, in an ASC environment. We also, though, recognize for some people that's just not going to work. So yeah. actually, this year we're developing a virtual version of that program. You're still going to have one-on-ones with a mentor and be able right. to, you know, zoom with them or potentially meet them in person if they're you're in your area, but yeah. allow you to get that education and training in a virtual format rather than in person if that just doesn't work for you. So right. now there's two different ways of doing it. It also creates two different opportunities during the year yeah. to start this program rather than have to wait a whole calendar year to get you know get started. Um, yeah. So this is something I think is only going to grow. I, yeah. I very much appreciate you know the the ask of volunteers that are serving as mentors, our education committee, which you've been on, right. uh, to to help develop this program. And I I think it's one of the ways we can ensure that the ASC model not just survives, you know, where we yeah. are in healthcare, but thrives. Absolutely. And I think for all of our listeners out there, um, they need to remember that you're never alone in this industry. I no. mean, there are no secrets. Uh, um, you know, we, we share our policies, we share our resources, and we share, you know, our knowledge, you know, through these yeah. one-on-one relationships. I, I think unlike almost any other healthcare setting, the ASC is a is a welcoming environment. Yeah, like when sure. you come to any of these meetings, people are so willing to try and help out, answer questions, you know, help yeah. each other out. We saw that our last ASCA in-person conference, the ability the, the number of people that ask questions or or, mm-hmm. or added to, to the conversation during sessions was uh, was really great to see. And you know the, the thing I'll, I I always just remark upon because I think it, we take it for granted. 
the ASC community is the most optimistic community yeah, in true. the healthcare space. Is that true? It is. It, you know, if you spend times in, in other settings, there is so much negativity yeah. and so much, you know, focusing on what's going wrong. The ASC setting, you know, from the you know, physician leaders to the administrators to the clinical staff to everyone, they just have a more optimistic view. Right. Of, of where things are heading. I mean, obviously, we have plenty of challenges, plenty, plenty of problems to overcome. Yeah. So I'm not trying to, you know, just blue sky this. But overall, I think because we figured out a better way to provide health care and to make patients not only get the health care they need, but do it in a safe way mm-hmm. and in a patient friendly way, that just leads to a like a more optimistic view of, of, of where things are. And so I just kudos to, to everyone listening out there in the ASC community because you've made this the best place to, to, to work in the healthcare you know, uh, sphere. And lastly, I, I promise this is last, the uh, importance of becoming a member of ASCA and, of course, becoming a member of CASA. Here we are at the CASA conference. And the importance of being members of both. Yeah, I, look, there are personal benefits to it because then, you know, as we've been talking about, you, you get to interact with other people yeah. that are experiencing the same problems and challenges you are. Um, so it's going to allow you to do a better job in your in your work and and obviously just access better information. The the ability to get the education and training uh, right. to to stay at the top of your field that you can only get at, at at an ASE conference, whether it's a state conference like CASA or or any of the ASCA meetings or any yeah. of our online virtual uh, offerings. And then thirdly, um, the the support you get financially by you know. Paying your registration fee for for a conference and being a member, your membership dues are the only way that we can, you know, support advocate. the ASC community. That we can afford to to you know hire people to advocate for ASCs in Washington or in state capitals to yeah. put on the education and training to be able to communicate, you know, what the ASC model is doing to uh, to the the larger world, whether it's the healthcare media or policymakers or payers. Mm-hmm. Um, so so every dollar that you you give to ASCO or your state association is being turned around to support the healthcare model that you're working in to make your life easier and to make sure that your patients get the care they need. Absolutely. As always, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do for the industry. Obviously, we've uh, we got a great story. That's why I think we're so optimistic. We have a great story post-pandemic. <laughs> well, well, thank you, John. You have been a tremendous advocate um, in the ASC community. The education you provide on financial issues is just, yeah. you know, been, been outstanding. You've been a great friend to ask and to me, and I, I thank you for this opportunity to spend a few minutes with you and your listeners. Always. Thank you so much. All right. And our next interview was with Matt Luke. He's the regional vice president for United Surgical Partners International. And he had a, an interesting uh, presentation on how to bend the recruitment trend. And it's basically about trying to find unique avenues for recruiting new employees. In particular, uh, we talked about uh, recruiting people from the ex-military individuals. And uh, I thought this was a great interview. So I'm here at the uh, CASA annual conference in Palm Desert uh, in September here. And I'm here with Matt Loop from USPI. He's one of the regional vice presidents, correct, for uh, for USPI. You know, Matt, we have a challenge right now throughout the industry with uh, finding appropriate staff, educating them on what's different about ambulatory surgery centers, and, of course, you know, being able to supply the services we need to be able to supply to our patients. And you working with CAS have come up with some potential solutions or ideas for that. So first of all, give me a little bit of background about you and why you got into this, and then we'll talk about what yeah. you're up to. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, and thanks for having me on the podcast today. Uh, you know, excited to share a little bit about sort of what we've been up to. But by way of background, so I, I've been in our industry now in ASCs for a little over a year. Before that, uh, I spent about six years in the dialysis industry where okay. I tinkered with a couple of these things that I'll talk about. Um, and before that, 11 years in the, in the United States Marine Corps, where I served as, a, as an officer and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, as the Naval Academy when uh, 9-11 hit, so straight off yeah. to combat and a lot of time overseas. And, um, and so... Um, yeah, I've been I've been really fortunate to transition into a into a great uh, industry here with ASCs and right. lo- loving what I'm doing. So, how did you get into a USPI? What was where did you start in the USPI? Yeah, you know, uh, started uh, with what I'm doing now, which is uh, this regional vice president role. I was doing something sort of similar to that in the dialysis industry, okay. and I uh, and so uh, yeah, I came over and, and now support uh, part of SoCal and then the states of Nevada and Wyoming. 
So, of course, uh, USPI, just like all of the surgery centers, independent surgery centers, uh, are, you know, facing some significant staffing yeah. challenges. Talk a little bit about uh, what's, you know, what is up with USPI and that that challenge? You're, you're not exempt from it just because yeah, you're a big no. company. Yeah, no question about it. So, you know, we've got exactly the same challenges as everybody else yeah. out there. There's no question. And, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty simple equation in my mind of, you know, they're, they're, the supply is just not uh, yeah. keeping up nearly with the demand, right? And you know, I don't, I don't think that it's uh, changing anytime soon either. And it, um, it predated so, the pandemic. It oh, just got worse by yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely, right. And so, you know, as I think about this problem, um, where I sort of start to challenge myself and try to challenge my team is, guys, yeah. we got to think differently than we have in the past right it's uh you know we've got to do something you know the term i like to use is bend the trend right we have to do something to sort of bend the curve and and, you know innovate sort of solve some of these issues um and so that's that's what i've sort of tried to do and had a little bit of success with a couple of different things yeah well it's fascinating so our whole conversation really is around the use of veterans Mm -hmm. in the uh, the industry and certainly your background Mm -hmm. you know is such that you probably recognize right away the uh, the nice fit that it is for sure. the industry. I'll tell you a little bit about you know my experience is uh, I found very early in my career uh, that uh, my best material managers came from the military for obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, there we deal with a lot of products in the surgery center industry, and of course, a, a good materials management person. What do you call them in, in a military? Sorry, I'm not from the military, so. Like supply procurement, chain, yeah. procurement, yeah, procurement. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they made fan. First of all, they had a great work ethic. Second, they were not scared of hard work. Right, right. And third, they were very, very organized, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it worked out very well for us. So, I, you know, I just naturally gravitated toward people that were uh, that had that type of a background. So, when I heard what you guys are up to, I thought right. that that it makes perfect sense yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right, John. I'm going to talk a lot about veterans at the Casa, yeah. you know, conference tomorrow. And but I'm I'm also going to remind people a lot that you know the the talk I'm going to give is actually in my mind at least less about veterans and it's more about um, how do you find the people that really have the right core competencies that you're yeah. looking for to be successful on your team. Right. And you know, frankly, I've had uh, a lot of success in the past with. Uh, hiring folks, for example, out of uh, out of retail. Yeah. I mean, a couple of my best hires ever came from Target. Uh, you know, one of my best leaders I ever worked with worked at you know was leading a Ross store. Yeah, uh, another from the hotel industry. Right, um, and you know. And, and, and to me, though, the insight really is around this idea of core competencies. Like, what, what are the things that make you successful in our environment? Right. I think often we index toward, you know, sort of having the industry experience and having those sort of hard skills. Right. But the reality is what makes people most successful is, um, you know, having a, a positive can-do attitude, being yeah. a team player who's happy to step outside of their lane. You know, and willing uh, to be innovative. Yeah, so, yeah, somebody who really gets connected to um, the mission. You know, this heart sort of connection to, you know, healthcare. Yeah. Um, people that are you know sort of there for the right reasons and and want to contribute to the team. And I think you know we can find those folks in lots of different environments. Right. Um, well, and we in the podcast have been really focusing lately on how do we build leadership skills, too, because mm-hmm. recognize a lot of people are coming into the industry from other industries. Now, usually it's in healthcare, or maybe they're coming out of school with, mm-hmm. you know, an MHA or, mm-hmm. you know, a health administration program, but that doesn't necessarily make them, yep. you know, a perfect mix in the, the amateur surgery industry since yep. there's very little training for that, even in college, and especially when you're working at a hospital and transition. Right over here so what do you think uh, are some of those core competencies and what other areas do we think do you think we should be looking for yeah yeah great great question um first to me is is this idea of uh you know enthusiasm yeah really a, yeah. um we heard a speaker earlier talk talk, talk what was it is a, a highlighter somebody who's gonna bring energy into the room pump up the energy yeah. And then after they leave, you still have that energy. And these people exist, and they exist, you know, in lots of different industries. And but it's something in their DNA, their personality, yeah. right? Their makeup. Um, so that's that's number one. I think about people who are what I call sort of happy to help, right? 
Um, what we yeah. don't need in our industry is somebody with their arms folded saying, that is not my job. Right. Uh, those folks can sort that's of work right. I've somewhere. I've never done it that way before. They can work right. somewhere else. Yeah, um, that's right. We yeah. need people who, our, our environment is just too dynamic, right? Yeah. And so we have to have people who are sort of bridge builders, who are happy to step out of their lane to support, you know, the person to their to their left and right. You know, and, and again, I think uh, uh, that there's really a benefit to people that are sort of really deeply connected to the um, to the mission that yeah. we have at hand. You know, people who get inspired to show up to work because we're, you know, going to fix a hip today and those, that patient is, is going to walk today. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that sort of orientation toward the mission, I think, helps with, you know, sort of a longevity, you know, because that's one of the things that we notice, I think, a lot in this environment is, you know, folks do a lot of job hopping. Yeah. I don't want to hire someone who's going to be there for six months or nine months. I want them there for three years plus. Yeah. Ideally, hire to retire, and that that's becoming really rare, right? Well, and that, that's a really good idea, a good point too to to make is that as we're looking at these resumes, we want to see some longevity there, and that's if right. we see a consistent every year they move on, yeah, that's yeah. A, a big downer. Yeah. yeah. And just, just a point, and you might be asking this question soon, but I just think, you know, it sort of does beg the question, how do you find those core yeah, competencies, yeah. right? And, you know, um, and I won't talk about this as much uh, in, the, in the meeting tomorrow, but, it, man, the longer I spend in operations, the more I tend to anchor to this idea that a 40-minute 40, 40 interview ain't enough. Yeah. That's number one. And number two... Um, the sort of questions that we ask really have to get to this to the core of, you know, how someone shows up in the workplace, you know, okay. and and sometimes I find myself in the interview process having to say things like, John, I'm going to ask you a question here that I, I'm I'm asking you to answer in a very specific way. Yeah, tell me about a time, and it has to be a very specific instance in which you actually did this. Put me in the room. I want to see it and feel like how you did this. Yeah. Tell me about a time when you went above and beyond for one of your teammates right. at, on your own initiative, right? And so getting out of the theoretical answers and into yeah. the very specifics of how you do those sort of things, um, you know, and, and, and I just... Um, and I think, you know, a second and third and fourth interview with key members of your team, it makes a lot of sense. Right. I think having them walk through the center and touch and feel the place so that they're coming totally clear eyed around, around what they're getting into yeah. is so, so important. Um, so I, I just wanted to sort of share those things as well. Well, it's interesting. We are, uh, as we're recording this, we're coming off uh, last week's uh, four day boot camp, you know, administrators boot camp. And one of the sessions that we do is on strategic planning. And one of the discussions that we had there is, you know, as you develop your strategic plan, your mission, and your core values, you need to make sure that you shout those out. Mm. And we talked about those core values that you establish need to be part of your recruiting period. In other yeah. words, you, you immediately, to your point, you know, we generally have about five or six core values like enthusiasm and, uh, you know, uh, uh, teamwork, things like that. You want to make sure that everybody that you recruit has those core attributes and agrees with those. Of course, you have to sneak around a little bit, try to figure out whether they, they truly exhibit it or they're just right. uh, giving you something to, right. uh, to get the job. But I think you got a good point there that it's important to uh, consider additional uh, interviews before yeah. you actually hire somebody wrong. Yeah. Yeah, quick, uh, just to add on to that, just to say, I, th I think this is sort of an interesting uh, in interaction I just had over lunch with somebody. She said, Matt, I'm a uh, brand new administrator with USPI. Yeah. And she said, Matt, I, I interviewed ultimately with uh, more than 10 people. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I said, I asked her, did you experience that to be a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. And she said, I loved it. Oh, wonderful. I, I loved it. Yeah. And I and I shared back, you know, I had a similar experience and I also loved that. <laughs> yeah. Because I re I was so clear-eyed around um what I was getting into. Yeah. I had every question asked and answered, right? Um I knew all of the things that were going to be great about the job and the things that were going to be pretty tricky for me. Right. And I also knew all of the people I'd worked most closely with. There wasn't some like, you know, jerk hiding under the hood that I knew nothing about yeah, right. Right, when I took the job. And so, yeah, I think it can be interesting. Now, I do think as a, as a, as a hiring manager, you want to be really clear about, you know, if you have a process like that, sort of the why. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I, 
Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that I tend to do is to just share that up front. Like, hey, you know, it might be a little bit of a longer process, but let me help you understand why I think that's so important yeah. and why I think it'll actually really benefit you in the long run. And uh, I think it's okay for it to be sort of challenging to join your team if you're that intentional about who you bring on. Yeah, as long as you have the time to be able to do that. Yeah. And we got places right now that are so desperate yeah. for people. Unfortunately, yeah, they end up not being a very good situation if you hire everybody that you have and then that's right. just you know, hope that they're going to work out. It's not a good, not a good solution at all. So man, I know tomorrow morning at uh, eight o'clock sharp after the big party tonight, that's going to be interesting, right? (laughs) Nobody in the room. (laughs) Uh, You're going to talk about uh, the veterans program that uh, I know you're excited about. Certainly I spent a lot of time with Beth talking about this. I know she's excited about it. It sounds like a great opportunity. Tell me a little bit about what this is all about. Yeah. Yeah. So in a nutshell, you know, um, I, I, you know, noticing some of the challenges we had around, you know, the labor market, I started to sort of challenge myself on this idea of sort of the core competencies that really make an outpatient surgery center work best. And as I started to contemplate these uh, uh, competencies, it, it occurred to me that uh, many of the Marines I used to work with would probably be a pretty darn good fit, yeah, right? Yeah. And then I thought, gosh, I wonder what we're doing for veteran transitions in our space or veteran spouses. And because, you know, of course, there's a lot of programs to help them out with this sort of right. thing. And maybe I could be helpful in sort of, you know, creating that bridge. Um, so I talked to Beth at CASA, and we actually, you know, created a, a veteran committee this year, which right. was super cool. And I and, know the uh, veterans that uh, register, they get a yep. little, uh, I mean, that's yep. great recognition yeah, yeah, that they cool have a little tag on there. this year. Yeah. Yep. And, um, so I, I started placing some phone calls to a lot of my buddies, you know, of, of course I live in San Diego, yeah. whole bunch of bases around there. And all my friends now are, you know, battalion commanders and stuff that are still active duty. And I've got a lot of friends in the, in the, in the sort of transition space in, in the nonprofit world and some I'm government sure. agencies. And, and they all were, 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 uh, pointing me toward the same thing. They'd say, Matt, there's a new program that exists now that didn't exist when you were in. It's called DOD Skill Bridge, and that is the easy button on all of this. Yeah. And so, so Skill Bridge is a program where, for a transitioning veteran, so if they're active duty, they, their command can give them approval for a 12-week internship, all Ooh. expenses you know paid, uh, to go, you know. Um, intern uh, at some place you know back in their hometown and if it turns out to be a good fit wonderful you can maybe uh, give them a job offer on the back end right and so it's a 12-week program for the vets and then a a six-week program for any military spouses oh wow um so that is that is sort of how the skill bridge program is designed now there's a non-profit that basically serves as the operations arm of skill bridge and it's called hiring our heroes so hiring our heroes is really where we want to reach out to. Okay. Um, and, and you can go on their website and it's super easy to get connected to, um, to sort of the regional managers there. The one that, uh, the, the woman I work with on the West coast, her name is Melinda Gomez. And what they do is they, they just publish a list of, of service members and or spouses and veterans too. There are people, yeah. you can do it as a veteran. Um, but they'll publish a list on a quarterly basis and, and you get this list in your inbox and man, if you're looking to hire some talent, I mean, it feels like Christmas. Yeah. Uh, because you open it up and it's, it's, it's very easy to sort of sort through in terms of where people live, where they want to go, what their interests are, what their background is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what I did was I, I, I reached out, I sort of culled through the list and I, anyone who's interested in anything, ops related or, uh, you know, healthcare, certainly, yeah. obviously I reached out to probably 30 or so people heard back from probably two thirds of them Oh wow! and yeah. set up quick phone screens with like 15. And I'm telling you that, uh, I would have loved to have hired 80% of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I thought, man, that was, that was sort of easy. Yeah. And, um, and so we actually did start with one. Um, and so we've hired somebody as a sort of a unique role called a business office coordinator, yeah. one of our centers. And, you know, it, it seems to be, uh, you know, going along uh, OK and we're learning some things from it. But I think it's just a, a really, really cool, just talent rich sort of right. easy pool to tap into, which is 
which is pretty pretty neat. Now, I say that, and I know, realizing the audience here, everyone's saying, Matt, how many nurses are there? Yeah. There's not enough right now, and, right. and Hiring Our Heroes knows that. Um, and, and in their world, uh, most of the nurses come out of uh, – uh, the Navy in Southern California. Okay. And so it's, it's a matter of getting in deeper to, uh, tell Balboa and then the Camp Pendleton Naval Hospital. Um, it's something that they're, that's like priority one for them right now because they right. realize how the, the candidates re- So this was new for them too, hiring our heroes in this ASC thing, right? And right. so they heard on their end how excited all of the, all of the, the candidates were to, to have a better understanding that man, I could go work in healthcare. Right. I didn't realize that, you know? And the truth is, I mean, there's just countless numbers of these folks that would be fantastic yeah. in our business offices or coming in as techs. Um, and then, of course, as we get a better connection to the, to the nurse world yeah. um, and, and the leaders too. I mean, gosh, I, I, I interviewed a couple of folks that were transitioning officers that had really compelling leadership backgrounds that would make awesome administrators. You know, and so it, it's it's a it's just a, a really cool uh, talent resource that's pretty darn easy to work with. Yeah. Uh, that's just I think another lever that we can be pulling. Well, and especially I, I was just talking to Bill Prentice, uh just before I interviewed you about we have the administrators boot camp. He has the administrator mentoring program mm-hmm. uh, with ASCA. We were talking about how uh, the programs are so necessary right now. There's a lot of people out there. They don't have to be in healthcare to be able to transition into that. Care. That's right. It's a great background to start out with, but I can't emphasize enough the the, uh, the the great thing about hiring people from the military is that work ethic that That's they right. have. Uh, it's a great start for it. So I think this sounds like a great program. And I, I think uh, a point – uh, that I think you also made too is that you don't necessarily have to work in a community. I mean, it's great if you're in a community that has a military base, but of course, all of the people that are recruited to the military come from all over the country. You're spot so. on, yeah. yeah. So you know, um, you know, one of the the centers in my geography is Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You yeah. know, and I and I think a lot about the. The, the, the young Marine who's who lives in and he's from, you know, Jackson and wants to get a good job. And I'm in Jackson all the time because of the yeah. surgery center up there. And, you know, I'll tell you that that surgery center has got to be one of the best places to work in town. And, you know, to be able to get connected to, to Phil Ramsey up there yeah. and to be able to build that relationship on the government dime. I mean, man, that's a that's a pretty special deal on both sides. Yeah, this is great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I look forward. I, I, I probably have to listen quickly to your speech and catch the plane. But, uh, but this has been sure. great. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you, John. This is fantastic. Great. Thank, appreciate the time. And our last interview, uh, and certainly not the least was with uh, my dear friend Beth LeBoyer. She is the uh, executive director for the California Association, and she's uh, responsible for pulling all this stuff together. So we had a great discussion about the California Association. It's our first time, Sue, that we were able to get together and talk since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You might remember that we were out. Where were Was it um, – was that up in – Monterey, I think it was in Monterey. It was, it was. Yeah, when we had an opportunity to uh, to interview her and uh, interview a number of people. So uh, let's listen to this interview where we talk about the state association and the activities over the last couple of years. So I'm so happy to be here at – what annual conference is this, by the way? Oh, gosh. I'll have to do the math, but <laughs> I believe it is 35. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. 35 years. Uh, and I'm so glad to be here in person again. The last time I was here was 2019. I know. Or, oh, yeah, it was 2019. Yeah. Heavens. So I'm here with Beth LeBoyer with uh, the California Association. And thank you so much for inviting me out here. And I had an opportunity to uh, speak on your one of your pre-opening conferences. Uh, you had a great turnout. Oh, John, it was our pleasure, and we're so thrilled you joined us. Gosh, I've heard nothing but such positive comments from your session on oh, great. the financial overview, and I think with all the turnover in the industry yeah. and or just some you know need um, uh, for you know looking at that again. Yeah. And even a lot of veterans wanted to say, hey, I, I want a refresher. So yeah. thank you for, for oh, making that great. I, I, I got to say this, too, because after two and a half years of COVID and a lot of virtual conferences where we're not getting a lot of feedback, um, your audience 
uh, was tough on me. I mean, and, and this is great. They asked me some tough questions. I, I think you were coming in at the end there as I'm trying to scramble to get the material done. And I made a couple promises to people that I hope I can meet to uh, make sure I give them the material sure I missed will. out. Yeah. But, but it was a great opportunity. Okay. So, um, you know, we've uh, we've done a couple interviews. I was able to interview uh, Bill Prentice from uh, ASCA. was just before the, uh, the new uh, 2023 payment rule came out. So we had a great conversation there. But we need to talk about CASA. Okay. And tell me what What's going on with the association, the benefits, your membership here? You know, you are truly one of the strongest associations. Bill and I agreed on that, um, you know, nationwide. And certainly in terms of size, I think you're the largest. I, I'm not quite sure of the math on that. Yeah, I don't, you know. Certainly as a percentage of the number of surgery centers, I think you're right up there. Yeah. And uh, so great job that you've been doing. So, But why do, why do people join you? Why do they join a state association? You know, it's tough out there. And yeah. that's our mission. And I always kind of like take, try to take take our mission and put it down to like we must be members of CASA yeah. and that's our our vision is that we just really help surgery centers in California because it's tough out there yeah it, you know it's it's a tough labor market it's tough um, you know coke coming out of covid the regulatory and that's what CASA is here for to help them navigate through some of those difficult waters I, I did a slide. I put a slide up on the screen that put down like $35 an hour as the average nursing salary. Oh. They laughed me off the stage. I mean, <laughs> I recognize that it. it's like those are East Coast numbers and <laughs> not even in the big city in the East Coast. But yeah, you've got a tough labor market. You know, we're all going through, you know, significant shortages right now. And of course, we've all been dealing a lot of your conference. I know it's a lot of conversations in the conference today, a lot of sessions about leadership, developing leadership skills. Uh, developing your staff, finding ways to keep your staff happy. And that, I think, yeah. has been a real the highlight of this conference and a real major need out there. And when I watch the emails that I get daily, it seems, from you, you know, you as an association are really making an effort to uh, uh, keep the membership up to date to assist people in, you know, getting the resources in the right place. Yeah, we were very intentional with that agenda. Yeah. Just um, you look at all the new administrators out there yeah. or people taking new roles in in the ASCs and so we felt like um, giving them skills for leadership right and then of course the labor market and looking at all the different um, things that you need to do to have that strong staff because it's tough yeah. it's tough out there and I think we have to look at things differently than we used to right so um, I'm excited we've got tomorrow on our t session tomorrow is really going to focus on that and I'm right. really excited for those sessions now during the pandemic you and I probably spoke more than we ever did in the years before that because uh, organizations like ours the podcast of course the state associations Many of the state associations, certainly yours, uh, really geared up. I mean, probably some of the busiest periods in your life, I would imagine. Absolutely. And uh, what do you think, what did you learn from the pandemic about uh, services that you as an organization can offer to your your membership? Because I think you've evolved. I, think I look at the services that you're offering now. It seems to have evolved. Your newsletters are much more, a lot more information there. Yeah, it was, you know, we really had to be just like surgery centers or right. nimble. I mean, well, guys. gosh, we, I was, we were speaking daily, right? Yep. When, yep. when you think of March of 2020 and every day, what's going on and trying to get consistent information. And every day it was something new. And so we really made an effort to um, just be on top of that for our members. And then, of course, we had to pivot for yeah. our annual meeting back then. So, um, we were able to just like really pivot fast and right. go to weekly webinars just because we felt like that was what our members needed. Right. And I think we just, you know, as we um, transitioned through that, you know, learned what our members needed and, um, you know, kind of kept an eye kept an eye on that and that's what when you yeah. say we have uh, transitioned or changed things um, just surgery centers it's 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 it is tough out there yeah. And uh, they don't always, it's all, you know, the health, the hospitals get a lot of the focus with uh, their dealings with COVID, but uh, surgery centers really have a lot of needs that direction too. So I'm a brand new administrator in a surgery center in California. What does the membership do for me in the state association? What can, what advantages that can I have? Especially, you know, so many of them are coming into it 
not from internal. Sometimes they're coming from an outside world. Or even if they're coming internally, they have no clue the regulatory environment. You know, it's funny you say that, John, because I always use my own personal experience. And we're talking quite a few years ago <laughs> that um, I was a, I transitioned from the hospital OR to yeah. running a surgery center to immediate. Well, I was supposed to be running clinical, and I was immediately running the entire surgery center, yeah. not in my skill set. And I went to my first CASA meeting probably three months into my position. And the members um, just kind of took me in and the networking, and I learned so much. And what I also learned is my situation was not uncommon. And I still see that today. So as executive director of CASA, that's what I want to make for all of our members is – Gosh, if they have a question, they call, they speak to somebody in yeah. person, they get an answer right away. If we don't know the answer, we connect them to someone in the industry and have that networking component and right. those resources to run a surgery center. Because it's, it, it's interesting, but it's, yeah. it's not an a unusual story that you don't have that MBA right. or all that stuff behind you to to run a surgery center. And just for our listeners, and, and you know, we have our patron program too. We have we actually have I think a couple regulars from California that join us on Saturday mornings. Which, by the way, since it's ten o'clock our time on the East That's Coast, it's committed. seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and of course, uh, bless all of those uh, boot camp members who join us at six o'clock your time. Uh, you know, for but but uh, you know the question often comes up. Uh, you know, what happens in California? The first thing I always say is call Beth. And then when they say who Beth is, <laughs> then I send them your membership form <laughs> because uh, you've always been great to us. You know, when we um, when we have a question and we need some, some information, it, it, you go right to the source with you guys, and I appreciate that. What, what do you do to become a member? And- you know, it's pretty uh, pretty easy. We have our website, and you can join on the CASA website. Um, you can actually reach out, out to us personally. Yeah. We'll help you. Um, you actually do answer the phone. I answer the phone. <laughs> we, we, all three of us, we have April and then Nicole, who is our brand new, just started this week, membership manager. Oh, wonderful. So what a week to start. <laughs> I know. I feel, uh, you know, I said this is probably the worst week for yeah. you, but I'm really excited uh, what she can bring for us to to you know help with that as well yeah. but um you know membership you not only get all those resources the networking the newsletters a free benchmarking yeah um all of those things um that help you run your asc and then this casa conference yeah it's just so energizing oh, it's so much fun so you come we away a party with party tonight in a few ideas hours yeah and yeah it. it's a great community you know, it was interesting. I was walking around the vendor, uh, talked to a lot of vendors because I know virtually, it seems like I know virtually all of them here. And uh, I asked how many of them are coming to the party tonight. And I'd say more than three quarters of the vendors I talked to, of course, maybe it's because the vendors I talked to are party animals like me. I don't know. But, uh, but it's interesting that that's a, you know, you don't always see that at ASCA at the national conference yeah. that uh, people are that engaged that they want to go to the parties. And of course that's a great way to get to know other people. Right. And right. I've been seeing that a lot, just walking around people introducing themselves and handing cards back and forth. It's great to be back in yeah, person. There's such good camaraderie and yeah. we're almost, we're actually higher attendance than 2019. So that's great to just hear. very exciting. What's your next conference? It'll be in Monterey. In September. The annual conference next yeah. September, right? Yes. Oh, the annual conference. And then we also have our virtual infection prevention right. seminar. And then we're working on some, you know, just virtual webinars, yeah. uh, you know, board of pharmacy, all yeah. those things that we have, que- you know, questions with. And, um, of course, like I said, with uh, the virtual and, and everything changing, yeah. I, um, we're able to, like, put on a webinar and say, oh my gosh, we need this. Let's talk about it. We can't right. wait. We, we need to, to address this issue. Absolutely. So. Um, and lastly, I did have an, a chance to interview your uh, legislative uh, people. So you can just give a brief uh, view as to as to what CAS is doing on the legislative front, what, what services uh, uh, you provide to your members yeah. there. Well, we're always working on um, on the legislative front because, you know, the surgery center industry is growing. Yeah. It's it's becoming more and more on um, 
the radar or being part integrated in the healthcare delivery. So it's important that we're at that table. Right. And we work very hard to make sure our legislators know what surgery centers are. Yeah. And it's amazing um, how many, many of don't. them don't know. So, and it's a constant education because there's so much turnover. Yeah. Um, but with procedures driving to surgery centers this is that's so critical because yeah. they if they don't understand us they're going to make some decisions that are not going to be good for surgery centers or for our patients right and the patients are of course the, the yeah. thing that's really driving the, the message right now yeah post-pandemic uh, certainly on the east coast where i spent most of my time uh hospitals you know, they wanted to get rid of those cases for, you yeah. know, certainly during the pandemic. Now they're starting to wonder as to whether they made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, but definitely we need to. Well, I think that's that. what the pandemic did. It took um, ambulatory surgery yeah. and you saw and accelerated the, they saw um, how it could be successful. Right. You know, it's kind of like telemedicine got totally accelerated, yeah. right? And they're like, okay, that's, it should have been something involving already. So I think I think the value there and the appropriate site of service, because yeah. um, you know if you can have surgery in an environment that all, all they do is surgery, it's right. less expensive. You have less chance of infection, and you have quality outcomes. A, yeah, you're not going to meet a, a patient with COVID. And, right, uh, right. Well, and, and I and having both of us came from the hospital industry. They should be taking care of the COVID patients. They should have the resources yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. That's one of the things I've been talking about on the podcast here is how, you know, we're right back to a hundred percent occupancy in many of our, our East Coast hospitals. I don't know how it is in the West Coast, but that's not where we should be. We should be during the summertime before the flu, you know, season mm-hmm. comes, we should be at 80 percent. And we as tax, taxpayers should be comfortable paying for that, knowing that the hospital's there yeah. for those other times. But if we're 100%, that means right now that there's some room for bringing some additional things over exactly. to the surgery centers. And I think the hospitals are thinking about that, that yeah. business model, too, and the appropriate site of service. So it's good. It's a good relationship. I mean, yeah. you know, I think there's always fear right. with the business and all of that. But there's uh, increased partnership. Right. And it's healthcare's expensive. So it's important that we look at doing things. I don't want to use the term progressive, but the right patient at the appropriate site of service. Absolutely. As always, Beth, it's great talking to you again. And uh, hopefully I'll be back here next year. Uh, Yeah. And uh, we'll uh, we'll get this published shortly so that uh, the... The, the rest of the people that couldn't make it down here could hear what a wonderful job he did this year. Well, so thank you, so John. And thanks so much for making our conference great. Oh, uh, my pleasure. Uh, it, was, it was a great way to start off our meeting. So really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.